0: A plain reading of just a few verses of Revelation, some in the book of Daniel and some in the book of Ezekiel, a few other places as well, tell us that there will be a third rebuilt temple on the Temple Mount. Now, there's a skirmish going on around the Temple Mount right now. And if you're listening to this, there's probably a skirmish going on around the Temple Mount right now. Uh, If... World War III does start soon. It will be over the Temple Mount area. There's three religions, two of the main religions in the world that count the Temple Mount as a holy place. Uh, You have the temple was there for Judaism. Uh, You have the third most important mosque for Islam, the Al-Asqa Mosque, and then they've got the Dome of the Rock that they believe is built over the spot where the temple was. So that makes them it very significant for them. And Jesus was crucified on the foot of Mount Moriah and Abraham went to sacrifice Isaac on the top of Mount Moriah. So it is important for Christians, for Muslims and for uh, Jew, uh, Jewish people. And And at the same time of the year, you have Ramadan for Muslims, you have Passover for Jewish people, and you have Easter for for Christians, and every year there's something that just seems to, to explode up on that Temple Mount, and we see it in the news. And then rockets start getting fired in here and there, and there's some other stuff going on in Syria. This is escalating a little bit right now. I don't know if you're listening to this in the future whether there's something going on there, but... More and more, we find that people are desiring to build the temple on top of the Temple Mount. We'll talk a little bit more about that here in just a moment. Uh, in part, uh, part of it, The temple being rebuilt is part of the clarity laid out of the restoration process of the nation of Israel. Jesus first foretold of the destruction of Jerusalem, the temple and the dispersion of the people of Israel all around the world. So Jesus foretold before it happened, it started in 70 AD, the temple was going to be destroyed, the city was going to be completely destroyed, and the people were going to be dispersed around nations. Then other passages told us that the land of Israel was going to become completely desolate, and then at some point in the future, God was going to restore the land, restore the people to the land, restore the nation of israel restore jerusalem to israel and then there would be a temple that would be built on the temple mount so it's a continuation of something we've seen happening in our day let me give you some of these verses so you've got them luke 21 5 and 6 jesus foretells the destruction of the temple here's what he says then as some of them spoke of the temple how it was adorned with beautiful stones And donations he said these things which you see the days will come in which not one stone will be left upon another they shall they that shall not be thrown down if you visit the Temple Mount today go up on the Temple Mount there is not a stone that is identified from the first or second or the rebuilt which is still the second temple the first or second temple period you've got the first temple period which was Solomon built a a temple that was said to just be splendorous. And then Nebuchadnezzar tore it down and took Israel captive and they brought him out of the land for 70 years. Then they came back and they built another temple under Ezra. Nehemiah built the walls, Ezra built the temple and the people who were still alive that remember Solomon's temple and saw it destroyed, when they saw Ezra's temple, they wept Because the glory of Solomon's temple was so much greater than the glory of Ezra's temple. Well, when King Herod came along 20 years uh, before the time of Christ, he began an ambitious building project on building uh, of remodeling Ezra's temple. And he remodeled it and it was finished in 63 A.D., long after Herod had died. The remodeling and and then it got destroyed in 70 A.D., So it was only at the splendor that Herod wanted it to be at for just seven years. And if you go there today, there's a row of stones that are along the wall that were pushed off of the edge and fell and left indents in the sidewalk that's there. It was underground. It was excavated. And you can go there today. I've shared with you before that I have a picture of me standing up on those rocks. In fact, it must have been something I did over several years because I found one of them where I've got a really cool black jacket on and I found another one where I'm wearing a black shirt. And what's really funny about, especially the one where I'm wearing the black jacket, I got my leg up on a stone. I'm kind of leaning forward as I'm looking. And then right right after they took the picture, somebody said, hey, you, get out of there. And I'm like, oh, I had to step over like a little red velvet rope to get over, to get up on top of the rocks to be able to get my picture on on top of the rocks but I'm standing on the rocks that were on the Temple Mount that got pushed over the edge. Now in Matthew 23, 37 and 38, Jesus foretells the destruction of Jerusalem. He had, I just read you his foretelling of the destruction of the temple. Not one of these stones are gonna be left on another that will not be thrown down. But here he's riding into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday and he weeps over Jerusalem. And he says to them, he says this, O oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stone those who are sent to her. How often I would wanted to gather you children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you will not. Your house is left to you desolate. Jerusalem will be completely destroyed. Rome, uh, Titus will besiege the city for four years. When they, 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 they suffer a few defeats early, which is shocking to them, that Rome would suffer some defeats at the hand of, of the Jews that lived in Israel at the time. And then they sieged it for four years. And when they, when they got in the city, they turned it into rubble. They just completely, absolutely destroyed the temple, destroyed the city. Just a complete and desolate city. Now, Jesus also foretold the dispersion of the people around the world from that time. He said in Luke 21, 24, and they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. So they're gonna fall by the edge of the sword. That's AD 70 by the Romans again. They're gonna be carried captive into all nations. That's why you can find Jewish people in Poland and in Russia. And you could have found them all over the Middle East Uh, a while ago, before they were driven out of these places where they had been for thousands of years. But you could literally find uh, Ethiopia. You could find Jewish people everywhere because they were sent around the world. And God promised he would do that as well. There's prophecies in the Old Testament where God says, I will scatter you among the nations. So God promised that he would do that. Now, the Bible also foretold the destruction of the land. Not only Would they be scattered around the world? Would Jerusalem be destroyed? Would the temple not have one stone left upon another? And that's exactly what you find when you go there today. But also in Ezekiel 38, 28, it says, For I will make the land the uh, most desolate. Her arrogant strength shall cease and the mountains of Israel shall be so desolate that no one will pass through people living in the land of Israel would be rare. This is during Ezekiel's time, where people are taken captive by the Babylonians. But he says he's going to make the land desolate. Mark Twain visited uh, Palestine, what we would call today Israel. He visited in the 1860s, and in a book called The Innocents Abroad, uh, he wrote in London in 1881 this about his visit to Israel in 1967. So it's 20 years after he visited there, he writes this, but this is what he wrote about his visit in 1867. He said, a desolate country whose soil is rich enough, but is given over wholly to weeds. A silent, mournful expanse, a a desolation is here, and not even uh, uh, imagination, can grace with the pomp of the life and action. We never saw a human being on the whole route. There was hardly a tree or a scrub anywhere. Even the olive and the cactus, those fast friends of worthless soil, almost deserted the country. Now, what had happened from 70 AD until the time of Mark Twain is that there was battle after battle after battle after battle over Jerusalem and over Israel. It went from the Ottomans to the Crusaders. There were those battles taking place. And we know that they wanted to destroy the land and that they cut down the trees in the land. And when you cut down the trees, it can't keep its soil. There's problems and the land became desolate. There were also marshlands that had developed all throughout Uh, certain valleys in Israel that made it unusable. You couldn't use it. And mosquito infested and caused all kinds of problems and diseases. But from that, the Bible promised a restoration. In in 1882, it was reported that there were 24,000, a census was taken of people living in Israel and it was found that 24,000 Jews lived in Israel in 1882. 150 years later, there are 6.8 million Jews that live in Israel today. God has brought the people back into the land. There's a restoration of the land, its fruitfulness, its people of Israel returning to the land, Jerusalem back to Israel. Let me give you a couple verses. In Ezekiel 36, 8, God prophesies to the mountains of Israel. But you, O mountains of Israel, you shall shoot forth branches and yield your fruit to my people, Israel, for they are about to come. The first thing that God did was restore the land. So if you visit the land today, you do not find what Mark Twain found. You find the opposite. You find kibbutz and agriculture and farms everywhere you go. You found that that Israel leads the world in desalinating water. And they are using the desalinated water to be able to make land that is previously unfarmable to be able to farm it. And they are able to feed the entire population of Israel and have more to be able to sell uh, with, with what they grow in Israel itself. In Ezekiel 37, one chapter after he says to the mountains, I'm going to restore you. My people are about to come. In Ezekiel 37, 21, it says, Then say to them, thus says the Lord God, Surely I will take the children of Israel from among the nations, wherever they have gone, and will gather them from every side and bring them into their own land. God says he's going to bring them in from the north, the south, the east and the west. That he's going to bring them in. Now, the restoration is not complete yet. We're in the middle of it. and, And God also promised that Israel would become a nation again. And it would happen in a day. And that happened in 1948. And the Dead Sea Scrolls that, again, tell the Old Testament story. Every book of the Old Testament was represented in the Dead Sea Scrolls, except for Esther and, I think, Ezra. And a portion of Ezra was connected with Nehemiah. So really, Esther was the only book that wasn't represented in it found in 1947, which tells all the accounts of Israel in the land, and then Israel becomes a nation in 1948? Is that a coincidence? But the story continues on in the Bible. There's things that that we're told that God's going to do that haven't been done yet. And there are two of them, the restoration of the temple and the salvation of the people of Israel. Let me give you the salvation of the people of Israel first. Romans 11, 25, and 26. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. And so all Israel will be saved as it is written. I will deliver, uh, the deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. So we've learned in this study alone that Jerusalem's gonna be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles is going to be fulfilled, and blindness is gonna happen to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. Those seem to me to be two different events. The, the, the uh, Jerusalem is trampled underfoot until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, and then blindness happens uh, to them. Let's see, how I'm getting those confused now. Anyway, you can read them yourself. They're two different events uh, that take place but that it has to do with the Gentiles. It seems like the time of the Gentiles is done now. God's dealing with the nation of Israel. Not that we aren't going out and doing the work and we're the church and we'll do all those things until the last Gentile comes in and it's time for that work to be done. Now, the second thing that, so God's going to save all of Israel. All of Israel is going to receive Jesus as, as, as their Messiah. If you are ministering to someone who is Jewish today, be encouraged There are more Jews who are Christians today than ever before. There's a larger number now than ever before. And it's happening at a a great rate. And God's beginning to do this work. And God's going to do it more. Because it says all of them will be saved. I don't know about you, but all seems like an awful lot. There's some 14 million Jews in the world today, maybe 15 million. I I, I haven't looked that number up in a while. But all will be saved. They're going to realize that Jesus is the Messiah and they are going to receive him. Now, let's take a look at the rebuilding of the temple. And I want to start that with our text in Revelation 11, 1 and 2. John says, then I was given a reed like a measuring rod. And the angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God. Now, this looks like Ezekiel. There's a temple in Ezekiel after the restoration of the land and the people to the land. They are, uh, he's given a rod to go and measure the temple. So here, same thing, John's given a rod to go out and to measure the temple of God. Now, there are those who say that a temple is not going to be rebuilt, nor does it ever have to be rebuilt. And the reason that they'll say that is because the Bible says that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And that is so true. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. You are. I am. It just amazes me. It amazes me that God dwells inside of me and that I am the temple of the Holy Spirit. And in the book of Corinthians, Paul has to write the Corinthians. I've shared with you before that the church in Corinth was a mess. And Paul writes to the Corinthians. I think it's 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And he says, you got to stop sleeping with prostitutes because don't you know your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? It's an honor for us to have this. We also know that Jesus said, destroy this temple and I will rise it up in three days. So that he is the presence of God. The temple was the place where God's presence would dwell. And so the argument is, is because God's presence dwells among his people, we're his temple, and that Jesus is is the presence of God when he was here, certainly, so that we don't need a temple to be rebuilt. That's the argument. But no one is saying that this temple is going to have God's presence in it. It's just saying it's going to be rebuilt. Remember, the temple during the days of Jesus didn't have the presence of God in it. The glory had already departed. And the ark of the covenant was not there god's present was presence wasn't in that temple it was a temple that was there but god had left that temple because of their idolatry so we're by no means saying that we're no longer going to be the temple and so this is going to be the temple so when someone starts to argue there's not going to be a third temple because we are the temple of the holy spirit we go yeah right on we are the temple of the holy spirit praise god right there with you but It's never saying that this temple is going to have God's presence in it. Now, there's a millennial temple. And I'm not really clear whether or not the millennial temple is the same as this tribulation temple. And whether or not God will have his presence in the millennial temple. Before we get out of the book of Revelation, I'll have time to really dive into that. I'm going to really look into it and see if I can find some answers to that. But I've got some questions about the temple during the millennium. What I'm talking about now is a tribulation temple that no one is claiming that the presence of God is there. So that is not an argument against this temple. He is told to measure the temple and the altar and those who worship there. Now, some say the only thing that is built during the time of the tribulation is the altar. But that's not what it says. It says measure the temple of God and the altar and the people who are worshiping. So God is gonna measure the number, John was supposed to go measure the number of people worshiping, the actual altar itself, which was where they give sacrifices, and the temple of God. And then it says in verse two, but leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it. So you remember that in the temple of Jesus' day, there was the temple, there was the holiest of holies that only the high priest could go in once a year. There was the holy place that only priests who could go in and take care of the table of showbread and the menorah and the incense altar that was inside the holies of hol- or the, of the holy place. You had the holy of, hol- holy of holies, then the holy place, then you had a court where the priests could go. They had the labor there. They had the sacrifices they could make, and families giving sacrifices could go into that area, or men giving sacrifices could go into that area. Then you had the court of the men, that only men could go. You had the court of the women, that men and women could go. Then you had the court of the Gentiles, that men, women, and Gentiles could go. So the further you got away from the center of the temple, there were more people that were included. The closer you got to the center of the temple, the less people that were included. It was only one. Now, do you remember one of the things that happened? Matthew 27 tells us when Jesus died on the cross, The veil in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. It was as if Jesus's death on the cross took away the separation, and now we can all go boldly to the throne. There's no longer those levels of separation. This temple will not have it. You have the temple, and that's all. The courts outside are given over to the Gentiles. That's what it says. But leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it. For it has been given to the Gentiles and they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. So during the time of the Antichrist, the Antichrist makes a treaty with Israel. It looks like to rebuild the temple and, to, and for peace. I think that's the big thing of the Antichrist. He comes up with a peace treaty for the Middle East. Who's able to do that? The Antichrist. And he's going to allow the Jews to rebuild a temple on the Temple Mount. Now, because the outside of the temple itself, you could today, leaving the Alaska Mosque and leaving the Dome of the Rock, you could build two temples up there. There's enough room to build a temple in between the Alaska Mosque and the Dome of the Rock. And then there's enough temple on the other side of the Dome of the Rock before you get off of the Temple Mount to build another temple. That one would be directly in front of the East Gate. And so you could build, too, if you knock down the Alaska Mosque or if you move it. No one's, no one's talking about knocking it down or blowing it up. And I shouldn't say no one because probably someone in the world who is, right? But the, the legislation that is trying to be passed in the Knesset right now. Remember, Netanyahu had to make a deal with certain people to gain power and some of the people that he made, about 10 of them, want the temple to rebuild rebuilt and are pushing legislation for the temple to be rebuilt. There are people that are making the implements right now. There are red heifers that have been flown from Texas to Israel that are there right now because they, have, because they had to sacrifice a red heifer on the Mount of Olives, take the ashes over to consecrate the temple. That's all in the law. They have to do that. They're putting together all of the things now. If you go to Jerusalem, you're going to see a $10 million golden menorah that they've got put up in different places in the city of Jerusalem. Those of you who were just on our trip there, it was in the place where we stopped for lunch. It was all the little places we ate were around it. There was that menorah that was there. Which is pretty amazing that they're building all these things. There's a stronger movement now than ever in Israel among Israelis to build the temple than there has ever been. It has moved from the extreme. 20 years ago, 30 years ago, when I first started going to Israel, it was extreme. If you wanted to put a temple up there, that was an extreme. But today it's not. I'm not saying the majority want to do it, but I'm saying there's a good number of people who want to put a temple up on top of it today. And they don't have to destroy the Dome of the Rock or the Alaska Mox. In fact, there's a place called the Dome of the Spirits. If you go to the East Gate and you go directly West, you'll come to the Dome of the Spirits and the rock that you look under the Dome of the Spirits is bedrock. Everything else that's up there is part of the the container that Herod built. He built a container wall and he built a platform. there There are bricks that are all across the top of it. And it comes to the Dome of the Spirits, and it's at the same level, but you can stand on it. And when I go, I stand on that bedrock. I go and stand on bedrock. I'm on Mount Moriah. Now, there's more bedrock in the Alaska Mosque, and some scholars believe that that is the bedrock where the temple stood. But there's some scholars who believe it's the Dome of the Spirits. In fact, Dr. Kaufman, and if you want to look this up, that's Dr. Kaufman with a K, if you want to look up his work, has done extensive work on why he thinks that's where Solomon's temple was. Josephus tells us that the east gate was in line with the doors of the temple. If you look at the, just look at an aerial map of the the temple mount and the dome of the rock and the east gate is off, if you're looking directly at it, the East Gate is off to the right by a good distance. And behind that is the Dome of the Spirits. So they could, that, they, they could have a discovery that that's where Solomon's temple was, that that's where the, where the Ark of the Covenant was. And then they could divide a wall and they could make a peace treaty where, I'm just you know spitballing at this point, where they give the West Bank to the Palestinians. You guys can have the West Bank but you give us this portion of the Temple Mount. Now, it seems like today that ain't gonna work. And if you ran that by, you know, a hundred Israelis and a hundred Palestinians, you probably won't find many who would think that's a good idea. But things change quickly. And who knows what will change. And maybe it's after what we call the Gog and Magog War, where there's a distinct victory for Israel, and Israel will have a whole lot more pull to be able to do it. So the outside of the court is to be left outside of. Now, around, I'm told, and I don't read, I'm not able to read the Aramaic that's around the outside of the Dome of the Rock, so I can't verify this. But I've been told that what it says is, God does not begot, neither has he begotten. And if you look at the writing all around the Dome of the Rock, that's what it's supposed to say. God does not begotten, God is not begotten. That is a direct attack on Christ, the Son of God. John 3 16 for God so loved the world he gave his only begotten son and so if you are dividing the profane from the holy then that wall would be that wall that would separate the two now let me give you some other verses that talk about a temple this is just two verses now it's going to go into the two witnesses and that's where we're going to be at next week but let me give you uh, 2 second Thessalonians 2 3 & 4 it says let no one deceive you by any means For the day of the Lord will not come unless the falling away comes first. So there's got to be, this falling away is probably an apostasy. We're seeing a lot of Christians today that are walking away from Christ. Whether they really ever had a real relationship with him or not, we're seeing a lot walk away. And I think it's the apostasy. So we aren't going to have the tribulation period until the, the, the great falling away comes first. And the man of sin is revealed. Meaning if you're in the tribulation period, then the Antichrist is revealed. You remember the first seal that was torn by the lamb that took the scroll was the conqueror that came forward with a bow in his hand and a wreath, a crown that was a fading crown. It wasn't a permanent crown. So this is the Antichrist who is given to conquer in the very beginning of the tribulation period. So when people tell me, and I get comments like this all the time, especially on YouTube, we're in the tribulation period now. I've taken to write one line. Where's the Antichrist? And I might put the verse in, you know, go ahead and cut and paste the verse in for them. Where's the Antichrist? The the Antichrist has to be revealed. He's going to be revealed right away. We may know a little bit beforehand. We might get some ideas. But by the time the tribulation period starts, we will know who the Antichrist is. He doesn't have to come first. He will just be there. Here's what it goes on to say. Um, And the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, that opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God and worshiped. So that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. In the middle of the tribulation period, he does the abomination of desolation, which G- Daniel talked about. Daniel talked about Antichaeus Epiphanes doing it. And then, he, then uh, Jesus talked about it happening again. And that there's a time coming that is worse than anything this world has ever seen or is ever going to see. And there's a, 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 a desolation that will take place. This is what it is. He sets himself up in the temple of God. If there's no temple, then how does the Antichrist set himself up in the temple of God? Daniel nine twenty seven. This is another passage about the end of time, the end of the world, the very end. It says, then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week, that's seven years, a week of years. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifices and offerings and on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate even until consummation, which is determined and is poured out on the desolate. So the, the abomination of desolation is him putting himself up as God to be worshiped in the temple. Now, one more passage, and this is Matthew 24:15. Therefore, when you see, this is Jesus speaking, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place. There's the holies of holies that has the candelabra, the showbread. There's the holy place, which had the Ark of the Covenant and the Antichrist will put up his image in the holy place. You've got to have the temple for those to happen. Now, three things in closing. Number one, fulfillment of prophecy speaks to us that we can trust in the fulfillment of prophecy. The fact that God said the temple was going to be destroyed, the people were going to be dispersed, Jerusalem was going to be destroyed, the land was going to be desolate, then God was going to restore the mountains of Israel, restore the people to the land, make them a nation, give them back Jerusalem, And all of those have come to pass. And there are people who tell me, you should approach prophecy not so literal. But all of those are fulfilled literally. They were literally fulfilled as they were said. So why now, after all of that's been fulfilled, at this point in time, is everything all of a sudden going to be allegorical from here on out? Has God chosen this moment of time that you and I are alive here today? Has God chosen this moment to move from literally fulfilling his promises to Israel to allegorically fulfilling his promises to Israel? And then there are people who say, well, the fact that Israel's a nation is just a coincidence. But God said they were gonna be a nation, that they would be born again in a day, and that God was gonna give them back Jerusalem. The very things, how can that be coincidence? When the Bible says it and it happens, that's not a coincidence, that's a fulfillment of prophecy. And the rest of it will come true as well. Number two, there is no reason to turn to spiritual fulfillment for the temple. There's there's nothing to make us think that we have to say this is some spiritual temple or he's talking about something else. In fact, I think that's a mistake when it comes to the fulfillment of scripture. And, And I think we've got a precedent for this. Not only do we have God fulfilling his promises to Israel being literal so far, but out of all of the Old Testament prophecies, they're all fulfilled literally. I only know of a couple that are allegories. When when God said, I will call my son out of Egypt, Jesus literally went to Egypt and got called out of Egypt. When when the Bible says Jesus was going to be born in Bethlehem, it wasn't a metaphor for Bethlehem. It was Bethlehem. When it said that he would suffer and die for our sins, that wasn't a metaphor of suffering and dying for our sins. He suffered and died for our sins. When the Bible says the virgin would conceive and bear a child, that wasn't a metaphor for a virgin conceiving and bearing a child. A virgin conceived and bore a child. And he became our Savior. When the Bible says, prophesied, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. That wasn't a metaphor for a child being born. A, a son being given. It was a child who was born and a son who was given. So if, if all the prophecies you're looking at in the Old Testament, when God said to Abraham, I'm going to give you this land and I'm going to make you, you, your descendants like the stars of the sky and one of your descendants is going to bless all nations and God gave Israel the land, that Canaan, that he promised Abraham, his descendants became like the sand of the sea because it's not only the Jewish people who are his descendants, but it's the Arab people that are his descendants as well. And then one of the descendants of Isaac has blessed all nations. What part of that is metaphor? What part of that is allegory? All of it is is literal. And so if, if all of prophecy in the Bible, and I'm open, if you want to find me an allegory, a metaphor, if you want to find me a series of them, I'm open to look at it and I'm open to change my mind. But until then... If I'm seeing them fulfilled literally, there's no way I'm saying the thousand years is 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 a, a metaphor or the temple is a metaphor. Or you know, any of the other things that we're seeing that are coming to pass are metaphors. Yes, there's a lot of imagery in Revelation. We know that. We know that at times you can see and you know it's a metaphor. We're not making something that's a metaphor, like the dragon coming out of the sea with the ten horns and the, the ten heads and the seven horns, and we're not making that literal we know when something is a metaphor and we're taking it as a metaphor but when it is something like the temple of God or something that is is just can be taken literally then we take it literally there's a hermeneutical principle or hermeneutical hermeneutic there's a hermeneutic principle I can make up words (laughs) that if you can take something literal you should take it literal Otherwise, you're just, you're not going to be right as often. Especially when we have the principle of the Bible already being taken literal. And that's very powerful to me. If all the Old Testament prophecies are fulfilled literally, and we think in our time that where we're living right today, that now all of a sudden everything's going to turn to metaphors. It seems to me that you would have to have some scripture for that. You'd have to have something telling you somewhere, There's going to be a change and we're going to go from literal fulfillment to to metaphor fulfillment. And I don't see it. Now again, hey, you know, be a good Berean. Receive the word of God with all joy, but search the scriptures out to see if these things are true. If you guys can find passages of a prophecy that are fulfilled in a metaphorical way, let me know. I'll correct myself in future studies, all right? Before we're out of the book of Revelation, if you can find them. Dive in, help me look. But... I don't think there's any reason for us to go to metaphors with these things now. And finally, number three, God recorded on God's recording, God's record on fulfilling the word of God. Let me just see if I can get this right now. God's fulfillment of his word gives us confidence that we can trust his word. Because we see the nation of Israel becoming a nation in 1948 and it was foretold, then we know we can trust when the Bible says these things are going to happen, that these things are going to happen. God's word is trustworthy by the prophecies that have been fulfilled. Let me give you one more literal prophecy and then I'm done, all right? Remember if the Bible said that the city of Tyre was going to be scraped clean and thrown into the sea? And you remember that was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, but then Alexander the Great came out and they'd moved out onto an island and he literally made a causeway from the the bricks of the city to go out and conquer the island. And he ran out of bricks and he cut down trees and he scraped the city clean and threw it into the sea. So the prophecy that the city of Tyre would be scraped clean and thrown into the sea was literal, wasn't metaphorical that it was gonna be scraped clean, but literal. I've made my point over and over again. So stand with me, would you? And let's pray. I got a few more if you guys want to hear them. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that it is rich and powerful and that you tell us that, hey, here we are living today in a time where a third temple being built on the the temple mount would cause World War III and your word says, go measure it. And that the Antichrist is gonna stand up in the temple of God. We know that there will be a temple there. We don't know how it's gonna happen. We've got some ideas, but we know that there will be a temple and your word will be true. And Lord, what an amazing thing it is that they've got red heifers there now, that they bought land on the Mount of Olives to sacrifice the heifers, that they're making these implements now, that there's very wealthy people that have the money ready now to build the temple as soon as they get it to go ahead. Lord, we thank you that we can trust your word. And the greatest part of your word is not that the temple is going to be rebuilt. The greatest part of your word is that if we trust in you, we will be saved. If we call out on your name, we will find salvation. That if we're weary and heavy laden, we can come unto you and find rest. And we thank you for this. In the name of Jesus, we pray, amen.